Hello and welcome to the next episode in our Diversity Faculty podcast series. Today we are going to be discussing diversity reporting and I'm joined by my fellow faculty members Simon K. Davis, Daniel Danso and Neha Rao. Now looking at diversity reporting and how it's evolved over the last decade, really we are much further on than where we were say 10 years ago but the statistics will always tell us that there's still a lot of work to be done. But when we look at what progress has been made over the last decade, just to set the scene a little before we get into the discussion, um, looking back at how it started, really the focus was probably on gender towards the beginning, a decade ago. Um, Much of the debate then centred around the use of targets and quotas and the legal and ethical risks of doing so, particularly for gender, in order to achieve that long-term change. And then we've also had since then and continue to have lots of different voluntary reporting benchmarks and pledges and charters for companies to sign up to or commit to over the years, the objectives of which have then evolved across different diversity strands and targets and also been refreshed themselves. Then in 2018, we had the new Corporate Governance Code, which really paved the way for reporting on diversity to focus on culture and diversity in a way that it hadn't before for eligible companies. And then since then, the focus of reporting and statistics has predominantly been on listed companies and board and exec level, but that is starting to change and we're seeing the focus shift to lots of private organisations as well, particularly as pressure mounts from the wider workforce and investors. Then in 2018, we also had the gender pay reporting regulations, which were really one of our first UK hard law pieces of legislation which required eligible UK companies to report on a diverse demographic of their workforce. And then there's been lots of discussion since then around whether we should also have ethnicity pay reporting as a mandatory requirement for eligible UK companies as well. So there's been lots of developments over the years, um, but as I said, statistics still tell us that diversity at lots of organisations isn't where it should be, and actually more progress needs to be made. So let's let's look at this in a bit more detail and what actually are some of the requirements for organisations to report on from a diversity perspective. So I think, first of all, let's kick off with you, Simon, if I may. So shall we start with the Corporate Governance Code and some of the hard requirements we have for listed companies on this space? Absolutely. So in July 2018, the Corporate Governance Code went through an overhaul, a a really serious change, looking at a more purpose and values driven approach to company governance. And as part of that, there are a number of introductions around diversity. Um, So requirements to explain your board composition, to identify your pipeline on a diversity level, and to explain how diversity features in recruitment as well. So actually, not the heaviest weight being put on on listed companies, and very definitely starting at the top rather than looking at composition across the organisation, but with some interesting developments around protecting your pipeline, developing your pipeline. For private companies, we also have to bear in mind that the Companies Act 2006 has obligations on the directors. So the key obligation on directors is to promote the success of the company having regard to the interests of particular stakeholders, including employees and the the wider community is the phrase in the legislation. Hard to see how you could be demonstrating that you're actually pursuing those duties without having some kind of diversity agenda in place. 
So the way that companies end up reporting on these various uh, requirements on them um, has developed significantly. So at one stage we had um, people starting to write separate freestanding DNI reports. We're now seeing more of an integration into the overall annual reporting, which I think is a good thing. I think it's a positive thing that it's becoming more integrated so that, um, for example, in the nomination committee's report, there will be some reference to how diversity is taken into account in the nomination process for new directors. Um, so that you're getting diversity being fed in as a strand across the whole of the report rather than as a separate thing sitting alongside it. We also need to mention gender pay gap, um, which much criticised by lawyers, but it has cast a very clear light on gender pay issues and has put the issue of uh, women's pay as opposed to men's pay within organisations absolutely under the spotlight. Um, as a legal tool, it is quite rough and ready. We know that it's quite rough and ready, but it has served a purpose and actually continues to serve a purpose. The HRC only today have said that they will be taking enforcement action if companies do not properly publish their gender pay gap stats for this year, um, following the slight disturbance uh, around the, the COVID years. Um, they're showing that they're really serious about that. Question whether we will also have to make uh, declarations around ethnicity pay gaps. Um, for a long while, we thought that that was on the horizon. It's been talked about frequently. People have pointed to how difficult it is, and yet we know that almost 20% of listed companies voluntarily do disclose their ethnicity pay gap. Um, so we had thought that it would be coming down the track. Actually, now government have said it will not be. They will not be enforcing a mandatory ethnicity pay gap report. Um, which uh, is in some ways a missed opportunity because we can see the strength that gender pay gap reporting has had. That's right. And the reason the government has given for not introducing a mandatory ethnicity pay reporting obligation at this stage is because it doesn't want to place an additional burden on companies coming out of the pandemic, which I think is missing a trick a little bit given they haven't responded to their own consultation, which was two years prior to the pandemic, actually looking at whether they should be implementing this in the first place and responded to their own questions and, and considerations that they, that they had put to companies to answer. And there's been so much call to action from various industry bodies lobbying for this to come into force. And so I think many companies, as well as industry bodies, academics, will feel frustrated that the government hasn't made this a mandatory requirement in the same way that we have the gender pay gap reporting obligations. But even with the gender pay reporting obligations, we're expecting some reform or potential reform on the way, as the government has promised to review the current regulations um, during this year. But we'll wait and see what happens with that. So all of that is really the sort of the the legislative, regulatory, compulsory requirements. But we also know that there's a lot of benchmarking being required of companies or being asked of companies. Voluntary in nature, so which benchmarks you choose may be up to you, but your reputation rests on it. Is it, is it worth just pausing and going back to actually asking, what was the point of all of that reporting? Da Daniel, do you want to take us back to why we're doing all of this reporting in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's a key thing to just pause on for a second. Um, we continue to talk about the the mechanics of collecting, you know, various bits of data and information and reporting on that 
in a variety of different ways. But that message of what what is the the point of it all? It, it was to increase uh, equity in systems and institutions. It was to get um, different strata to be able to recognize how different groups could be excluded from them in a variety of different ways. So I think you know one of the things that I would like to see more of you know is for these types of benchmarks to actually couple that message so that we have to work. Uh, we, we have to do fewer things with our leaders to get them to see that connection. Um, there are a lot of positives. Um, it is actually getting businesses to invest in, you know, thinking about collecting some of these things, the systems that they need to do that, you know, the cost that it takes to collect and um, report on these things, both in human time and in, you know, financial cost and setting the right infrastructure. Um, I think that it is a, a very positive thing in that it's gotten businesses very quickly to start thinking about collecting anecdotal evidence, the experiences of, of individuals as they go through all of their business processes. So those things are really positive and I'm, I'm all for that. But I think there's far too much emphasis on the mechanics of it without it actually yielding something that's going to be meaningful at the end. And that, that for me is where I suppose, well, whether it's voluntary or not, if you don't know why you're doing it, it can easily become just a, another box you have to tick because these things comes up every year. Where are we moving on these things without actually thinking about the cultural dynamics that these things are asking you to evidence? Are you really saying that it's about the narrative rather than the pure data? I, I'm saying that data is way more creative than business has been asking it to be. And I think, you know, now we're starting to see the variety of different ways we should have been looking at people's experiences. Um, but because they're being forced to do it, as opposed to them actually growing, you know, in their development and going, actually, you know, we think there might be some imbalance in, you know, say in the legal industry work allocation. Let's check that out. They got dragged kicking and screaming to do it. So it's like, yeah, you, you can do the mechanics, but if, if that isn't part of the culture, like you said, woven all the way through, if it's not part of that culture, is it actually achieving what the whole point of collecting that is? Neha, um, is it worth just talking about the pressure that businesses bring to bear on each other to reveal their diversity data and, and use that? So, as a, as a supplier of legal services, we obviously have to supply data to, to clients. How do you see that actually being used on a business-to-business -business basis? So I absolutely agree with there is definite value in the reporting requirements. The, the, the exercise of reporting and collecting information about how your business operates and whether diversity is woven through, that is an important exercise. And that in and of itself does yield some accountability and it does force businesses to get clear on the processes they run and it does force businesses to get clear on, you know, are they able to track and measure what the experience of their people is. So I do want to, yeah, do want to say that the, there is a lot of benefit to the reporting piece. However, I think the point that uh, Daniel is making is that reporting in and of itself is not the silver bullet solution to historical underrepresentation or systemic exclusion. It is one piece of that puzzle. Um, and I think what we experience as a supplier uh, and having to 
you know, report in various different ways, is that sometimes it's quite clear that it, people are not sure why they are asking for that information. So it's almost like putting the cart before the horse. So I think the real benefit of reporting is to know what you're asking and why you're asking it. So if are you trying to get under the skin of the culture of the business? Is that what you're really trying to investigate? Or are you trying to investigate the mindset of the leadership and how serious they take this? Or are you trying to evaluate the level of investment being made in diversity and inclusion? Or are you trying to evaluate the progress over time? Or are you simply trying to measure representation across the ranks? I think if you're clear on what you're trying to measure, you'll be able to come up with the relevant questions to ask in reporting. And at the moment, it seems almost like a scattergun approach where everybody's asking to report on everything, but they're not quite clear on what aspect they're trying to test. And they're also not so sure what they do with that information when once they get it. So there is a piece about just starting from first principles. Why do you want this information? What aspect of this business are you trying to evaluate? And then you can come up with the, the requisite data points to, to try and match that. And are we seeing industry standards developing from all of these various benchmarks? Are, are we starting to see actually there are thresholds that businesses expect their peers and themselves to achieve? Yes. So, you know, 30% is obviously thrown out as a, as a common threshold for representation across, uh, you know, underrepresented groups. Um, but I think, you know, the bigger question is we are starting to see um, attempts at standardization, which is good. However, we are in that period where you've got so many different voices, so many different collectives, all trying to come up with an industry standard that you just have, uh, you know, just just a huge array of array of industry standards. So there is no standardization, which is the irony. Uh, but I think that that is probably to be expected as we work through what it is it means to be a diverse and inclusive business and how you get the metrics to prove that. I completely can see why this fragmentation is happening. Uh, but the ultimate goal, I think, should be standardisation. But we do have to go through this this messy period as we try and work that out. It's really hard for businesses, though, to think how they could achieve any kind of standardisation when there's a lack of legal and regulatory rules and guidance on what they should be reporting on. But beyond that, there's also expectations for them to be publishing narratives and action plans and how they're progressing and how they're addressing any pay disparities as well across different diverse groups, which isn't mandatory, but it's still expected. But then there isn't the guidance to say how they should be doing those narratives and how they should be describing that. So yes, report on your data. Really, you should be backing it up with a narrative, but we're not going to tell you how to do it. You've got to work that out on your own. And so we're seeing inconsistent reporting coming out from lots of different organizations and then inconsistencies of, of approach being taken by different regulators for different sectors or different sizes of organisations, and then different expectations coming from other bodies who are putting forward these voluntary benchmarks like Hampton Alexander or the Parker Review or the Race and Ethnicity Code. You know, there's so many of them now. But all of this is, is indicating, you know, that kind of friction that we're, we're talking about. Think of how many people in the business now, today, because of all of those different points of, you know, questions on, on how the business is performing, who suddenly have a very demonstrable role in BNI. 
but may not have ever been given any kind of education as to what that actually means as they collect this data, what they're looking for. So it, it could mean that a variety of, of businesses that may be suppliers or you know any of the ones that are needing to report to another business, that those things are going to individuals who are not data analysts who, who may not actually know, as Neha says, what they're looking for. It's just the point of collection that has become important. And I think it's we're forgetting the point of it all. And that that to me is why you've got to have, we, we've said it over and over again in, in a lot of our podcasts, the culture has to go with the mechanics. And just in reporting terms, the data that I see companies providing is very rarely contextualized. So we know that in some sectors, for example, there is higher female representation just because there are more female graduates coming through. In fashion, 85% of new entrants to the job market are women. Um, and yet we still celebrate the fact that 40% of women on boards of fashion companies, of people on boards of fashion companies are women, when clearly it should be around about 85%. That contextualization is something that I wonder whether we're seeing people starting to think about. Is that, is that something that we're, that's, that we're seeing in the marketplace? Are people working out that actually it's contextual rather than absolute data? So as you see, like lots of different sector-based reporting, you know, initiatives pop up. I think that is trying to recognise that each sector probably has different challenges and different underrepresented groups and different sources of exclusion. That is true. But it is, as you say, every business is on a different journey and every business is starting from a different point. And you, it's going to be very difficult to come up with a finite set of questions that will apply to every business. So that standardization ideal is very, very hard. But at the same time, uh, if every single business is asking each other a different set of questions, that fragmentation is also very problematic as well. So I, I'm not really sure where we've landed on that, but I do think that, I think the sector-based approach is probably the most appropriate, recognizing that each sector will probably have you know, individual challenges. Um, and that probably is, a, is an area that's ripe for standardization. Um, but it does, even within that, you do need to be able to tell your own personal story. There needs to be an opportunity to say, last year we were like this, this year we made, you know, XYZ investments and now we're like this, to tell that story. And I do think the reporting needs to focus on progress, not on just those individual numbers. Oh, okay, I've hit this particular number, therefore I am diverse and inclusive, check. It's not, it, it, there is no magic number that is going to be a stamp for, you know, diverse and inclusive, you're certified, that's it. Um, they're all just indicators and they do need to be taken as part of a broader story that each business needs to be able to tell for themselves. So I think some of the key themes coming out of our discussion then are that we have some legal and regulatory duties when it comes to reporting on diversity and inclusion for businesses. They are evolving. There are certainly lots of gaps. We need more, but we're not quite sure what more looks like yet. In the meantime, the power of the narrative seems to be key across all of this, whether it's voluntary reporting or mandatory reporting. But reporting by businesses is still inconsistent and it's rarely contextualised. But as an overarching theme, coming to what Daniel mentioned towards the beginning, 
we all really need to remember why this is important. It's not about box ticking or just about compliance. Really, we have to be approaching reporting by linking it back to the strategies and objectives. And then businesses can then report on how they are achieving progress and driving change. So I think that's all for today. We'll, we'll draw a line there, but thank you so much for listening. As usual, if you have any questions, please do get in touch with one of us, but stay tuned for the next episode in our diversity podcast series.